Good morning. Please open your Bibles with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. Our study of this epistle is beginning to draw to an end. Today we begin the last chapter. At the same time, Peter has already started his winding up uh, and concluding of this letter. If you look back at chapter 4 and verse 7, when Peter says, the end of all things is at hand, really from that phrase until the end of the letter, Peter is bringing to a conclusion the exhortations and the teaching uh, that have been sort of cycling and circling throughout his letter. And he wants us to live in light of the end until the end, because we know that the end of all things is at hand. He's told us to love one another, to fellowship with one another, to serve one another, to pass through the fiery trials on the way to that very end. And so as we get to chapter 5, Peter's continuing that teaching of living in light of the end to the very end because of the end. It's interesting to notice that in chapter 5, there are very strong parallels uh, between James chapter 4 and 1 Peter 5. You find the same kinds of teaching, some of the same phrases and quotations. uh, And so there will be some overlap with Pastor College's study of the book of James as we study 1 Peter 5. But the verses this morning don't really begin that parallel yet. What we see in verses 1 through 4 Uh, is not a parallel with James, but the rest of the chapter in many ways is. Let's read verses 1 through 4 of 1 Peter 5, and then uh, get into the outline. This is the very word of God, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed... Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory." Now, if you're not a pastor, then I dismiss you at this point. Uh, You may go home because the rest of the sermon is not for you, but it is at the same time for you. Uh, Why? Because Peter wrote this letter to a group of churches. It's a general epistle, and it's meant to be read publicly uh, in the assembly, in the church. It's important that a church knows what the duties and responsibilities of its pastor or pastor's are what are the duties what are the responsibilities they need to hear this too and this is useful for us in a variety of ways Uh, it's useful for us because we're considering a pastoral candidate Uh, we would we have proposed hayden mills as as an elder candidate and we want to vote when the time comes with a conscience that is informed so that we use the right criteria to judge such a candidate that's one reason why this is pertinent it's also pertinent because Jesus has so structured the government of the church that the members of the church have an important role in the government, 
in specific and certain ways, and one of the ways is in ensuring that the pastors fulfill their calling. Uh, Paul wrote to the church in Colossae, and he said in Colossians 4.17, And say to our chippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. If you're reading the Greek there, it says, say to our chippus, that's a plural command. All of you, you plural, tell our chippus, singular, to fulfill his ministry. So the congregation should know what the ministry of the minister is so that they can call him to fulfill it if he were negligent in it. So the congregation needs to know how to evaluate new ministers. It needs to know what the current minister's duties are so that they see that they are fulfilled and they have the proper expectations and so on and so forth. So I know I dismissed you, but please don't leave until after the sermon uh, if you're not a pastor. And yet at the same time, the principal uh, target of this teaching is the elders. You may think, well, this is directed at people who are older or more mature in the faith because Peter then goes on to speak about the younger who submit to the elders. But we see here that these are salaried persons and you don't begin to get a salary in the church just because you've reached a certain age. Uh, These are men who have been called to an office, not just persons who have a certain number of orbits around the sun, a.k.a. years. So these are pastors. These are elders These are presbyters or ancianos. These are uh, the leaders of the church. And they need to hear this teaching above all. I need to hear this teaching. To structure the outline of the sermon, there are four points, four simple points. The first of which is the perspective. Peter gives to ministers and to the church a proper perspective of what an elder is as well as what an elder does. Notice that Peter describes himself in verse 1. He calls himself a fellow elder. He calls himself a witness of the sufferings of Christ. He calls himself a partaker of the coming glory. So think about the CV uh, of Peter the Apostle, his curriculum vitae, his resume. If Peter's submitting his CV, his resume, what's on it? It would say, handpicked by Jesus. It would say, in the circle of three, Peter, James, and John. It would say, witness of his sufferings. It would say, personally restored by the Lord Jesus after my sin. It would say, I preached the sermon at Pentecost. It would say, I received the vision of the clean and unclean animals saying that the gospel should go to the non-Jews, to the Gentiles, and so on and so forth. Peter's CV, his, his resume, outshines each and every one of us. He's got the best one. Uh, Peter has many reasons to boast, many reasons to glory, And yet, Peter was an extremely humbled and therefore humble man. His CV would also say, I made this mistake, I made that mistake, I messed up, I fell on my face time and time and time again. And so Peter, we see in 1 Peter, is a very mature and sanctified Christian man. And despite the greatness of his personal history in comparison with others, perhaps, how does he speak about himself? He's saying, I'm a fellow pastor. I'm on the same level with you all. He's not the Pope. He is rather a fellow elder and pastor with the other pastors. And as a fellow pastor, he says, I'm a partaker of the coming glory. I have the same inheritance. I don't have some special 
uh, inheritance that's reserved just for pastors. I'm a partaker of the coming glory just like all of you. I'm an elder, I'm a, uh, a pastor just like the pastors in your church. And so pastors need to keep in mind and have the proper perspective that although we occupy a different place in the structure of the church, we nevertheless receive the same grace as all of the rest of the church. So elders do have a different place, but they have the same grace as all of the church. And this should prevent us from ever being puffed up in our own minds about the place that we occupy and the calling to which we have been called. We ought to be humbled. And the language of shepherds is a strong indication of this as well. The language of shepherding and the flock and sheep is all throughout these verses, as we're going to see. If you were a first century Mediterranean person, and this is true of most other cultures, being a shepherd was not a a particularly honorable or desirable occupation. You're smelly because you live out in the country with animals. Uh, So the idea of, wow, a pastor in our minds may have some kind of glory, but the idea of being a pastor is a shepherd. Uh, And Peter says, I am a fellow elder with you, and your work is to be shepherds. Being an elder is not about being a a ruler and a lord. It's about being a shepherd and a servant. And not only are we shepherds, but we're not even the big shepherds. He speaks of the chief shepherd in verse 4. There's a chief shepherd, so we're under shepherds. You're shepherds. You are not uh, glorious Uh, magistrates, your shepherds, and even then you are under shepherds because there is a one and only one chief shepherd. So you do have a different place, but you have the same grace as all Christians, and this different place you have is to be a shepherd, to be a pastor under the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. Furthermore, for more perspective, he speaks of the flock of God. It's not my flock. It's not any of the pastor's flock. It's God's flock, which has been given to us that we might care for it. This is very important because uh, the modern church context of our region, but the larger world, is that it is full of um, independent churches with independent pastors, And people go to that particular church because they like that particular pastor. And what happens is you get thousands and thousands of loyalty cults, personality cults, where the church's relationship between pastor and member is you are loyal to the man. You're there because of the man, and you're loyal to the man. And all of that is entirely inappropriate. It's not just unbiblical. It's inappropriate because the pastors are merely under shepherds, under the chief shepherd, and the flock is not their flock, but rather it is the flock of God. We are shepherds, not kings. We are servants, not lords. We are under shepherds at that, and we shepherd sheep that do not belong to us. There should be no sense of personal loyalty. Oh no, I've offended the pastor. He's mad at me. Yes, people do offend each other. That's a thing that happens as a matter of fact. But you know what I'm talking about. You may have been in churches or known 
uh, men who occupied this, this office and other places where sadly that was the case, that your permanence in the church, your place in the church had a great deal to do with your personal loyalty to the man. That's sinful and it's wicked and it should be rooted out of every pastor and every church. following from this perspective that we have a different place but the same grace and we are under shepherds of the chief shepherd and we have been given a flock that does not belong to us, Peter gives all kinds of perspective about the way in which we ought to do our work. He says work willingly and eagerly. Now what's the, what's the sort of stereotypical description of American work? It's I commute, I work nine to five, I go home, I microwave dinner, I commute to work, I work nine to five, I go home, I microwave dinner, I climb the corporate ladder, I live unfulfilled, I don't have a family. Uh, the American work ethic and the, Amer the description of American work is very robotic. I am a rat in the rat race. I do the thing over and over again and again. Those people are not working willingly. <laughs> They're working by the necessity of, and compulsion of their stomachs they need to eat. Peter's saying pastors should not think this way of their jobs or do their job in this way. He's saying you shouldn't be drones, you shouldn't be robots who just show up and do their work, but rather you should do so eagerly, not by compulsion, not because someone's making you or because there's some necessity that forces you, but because you want to do it. There is a willingness, the will is consenting the will is wanting. The will desires to do the job. The pastor should see the goodness of the calling and be satisfied that they are doing a good thing and therefore have joy in it and they do it willingly. And because pastors ought to work willingly for the goodness of the thing and the goodness of the calling, they should do so eagerly in a way that is not for money. Oh, so we can delete the pastors from the budget? <laughs> Great. That frees us up for so many things. Well, no. Peter's not saying that pastors aren't paid. He's saying that's not why they should do their job. Paul elsewhere makes it very clear that those who work for the gospel should live from the gospel and that the workman is worthy, worthy of his wages. But to be worthy of wages and to be paid is one thing. To, to just do this to get paid is a completely separate thing that is entirely inappropriate. And there were many people in that day and in that culture who lived off of religion. They would say, if you pay me, I will offer a prayer on your behalf to such and such a deity. I will perform such and such a religious service for you. And so through religion, there were many people who used it to get money and to enrich themselves. Uh, Paul often avoided taking money from churches so that he would not be suspected of this because it was a thing. It was a reality in the culture and the time. And so Peter is making sure that these Christians don't fall into the error of doing the work of the ministry just to get paid or just to get money. He says, no, do it eagerly because you want to so that the job is not a means to an end where the end is money but rather the work is a means to an end, and the end is to shepherd the flock of God. And the money's there so that you can do it freely. You're paid so you can dedicate yourself to that work. You're not paid so that you dedicate yourself to yourself. For ministers, the end of the work is not the paycheck. 
It's to oversee and to shepherd and to help. So Peter gives us very important perspective about our work. We are pastors, yes. Elders, yes. We occupy a different place, yes. That's true. But we have the same grace. We're heirs and partakers of the same glory that's coming. We ought to do our work with a a willingness, not a compulsion and a drudgery, droning like robots. And we should do so eagerly so that the paycheck is about freeing us to serve the church, not giving us the best life because I want a yacht and a mansion and this and that and the other thing. Peter says there's a chief shepherd. This is not, you're not a king with your little kingdom. Rather, you serve and shepherd the flock of God. Elders feed and water the flock along the way, keeping the sheep on the way. And this needs to be the end in itself, not money. Secondly, the purpose. We've seen perspective. Peter gives us a very healthy, proper perspective of the gospel ministry, uh, what it means to be a pastor and occupy that office, the way, the perspective we have to have as we do our work. And now the purpose. What do we actually do? What is the purpose of being called to this office? And we can see this in three commands that Peter gives to the elders. He says, I exhort you, I call you to do what? What is the work to, that he exhorts the elders to do? Three things, to shepherd, to oversee, and to be an example. Let's consider each one of these. To shepherd, to oversee, and to be an example. Elders ought to shepherd the flock. Now, it's a metaphor. You're not sheep. I'm not a shepherd. So how can I shepherd you if you're, not, if you're not sheep and I'm not a shepherd? Well, these are metaphors. To shepherd is to lead. It's to feed. It's to water. It's to protect. What are the things that shepherds do? They lead, they feed, they water, they protect. And these metaphors become reality when pastors lead the church in the way that Jesus has called it to go. This is the direction Jesus has told us to go. This is where we're going to go. Because sheep could go any number of ways. They'll just graze and graze and go and go. And the shepherd needs to say, we are going in this particular way to this particular place. They lead and direct. They also feed and water. Metaphors for uh, enriching the spiritual health, maintaining the spiritual health. Remember that Peter has earlier talked about the milk of the word. And so it is through God's word that pastors lead and feed and water the flock of God through public and private teaching. Public teaching such as sermons and Sunday schools and such things. Private teaching through pastoral visits, through personal questions, email correspondence, all of the the private shepherding that goes on from all the different pastors. We all preach, we all teach publicly and privately. And shepherds also protect. Sometimes the sheep are going the wrong way. And so pastors need to protect them from themselves or from threats. There are wolves, there are bears, there are threats outside of the flock that come after the flock. And so pastors are to protect the sheep from errors in practice or in doctrine, sins or untruths. 
We correct the unholy living of Christians. We correct the untrue thinking or ideas of Christians. And in all of this, the word of God is the foundation. How do we know where to lead? How do we know what is nutritious for the soul? How do we know what needs to be corrected in doctrine or morals? The word of God is the foundation. So once again, it's not the pastor is king of his little kingdom, and you are shaped in the fashion and image of that particular man, but rather it is the word of God which points us to Christ, and pastors ought to help you grow to be shaped and fashioned and remade in the image of Jesus Christ. So we don't correct things we don't like. We correct things that God has forbidden. And we don't command things that we like. We command the things that God has commanded. If you say, I'm a Dodgers fan, I'm not going to correct that. I mean, it might be wrong. It might not be a good idea, but, <laughs> but I'm not going to correct it. Just kidding. I am a loyal Red Sox fan. However, I have full respect and appreciation for the Dodgers. I just like to poke you guys sometimes. The Dodgers are not my enemy. We all know who the enemy is. They wear pinstripes, and they're in the big evil city. <laughs> we can all agree on that. The point is, what is, it, what is my place? Uh, what have I been authorized to correct, to protect you from? Is it any and every idea or thing? No, it's what the word of God has commanded or forbidden. So we shepherd according to the word of God. This also means to adjust your expectations. Um, if you want social commentary, if you want political insights, the pulpit's not really the place for that. <laughs> you could ask me privately about my own opinions on those things, and I won't have very good ones. You'll be really disappointed. Uh, but the, the sermon, the word of God, at times certainly does apply to those spheres and those situations. We're not saying there's no overlap, no connection. But the sermon is not a, a social commentary, a news review, a news show, and such things. It's the word of God for the sheep of Christ. Shepherding also, the, the leading aspect of shepherding also connects to the, the idea of the end. Where are we going? The end of all things is at hand. That's where we're headed, towards Christ and the glory that he has won for us. We're all going together, and the shepherds are called to ensure that the sheep get there. So we said that shepherding is one thing we're commanded to do. This is leading, feeding, watering, and protecting. We're also called to oversee, to exercise oversight. And here we get into to ruling and governing, which overlaps, all of these things overlap. It overlaps with the protecting of the sheep. Elders have oversight over the members of the church. Is this a general oversight over everything that you do in your home? Of course not. That would be uh, ridiculous. It would be exhausting for both me and you. <laughs> uh, I'd like to buy a new car, Pastor. Is that okay? <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> Do what you want. In, in the area of freedom, in the liberty that the Lord has given to us, it's, it's liberty. Where the pastors don't have oversight. They can offer wisdom and counsel, certainly, if you, if you would like that. But our oversight, what do we oversee? We oversee the holiness of the Christian. We oversee the holiness of the Christian and the order of the church. I've already talked about the, over, the holiness of the Christian in terms of protection and leading. So I want to emphasize a little more 
oversight over the order of the church. Elders exercise oversight in one way, by keeping things orderly in the church. We make practical decisions about wisdom matters that do not have a specific command in the scriptures. We decide what time our services will be, how many services they will be, what sermon series, what hymns, and so on and so forth. The elders exercise oversight by ensuring things are done in an orderly fashion by making a number of decisions that could be made in different ways. We could meet at different times. We could meet more, more times or less times. We could change it in a lot of different ways, but we make choices that we believe are orderly and for the benefit of the church. That's part of the oversight that we exercise over the church. And we over exercise oversight over the Christian life in terms of holiness. For members, this is, un this is also important so that they have a proper understanding of the extent to which the elders properly have oversight over them. But it also helps members to, to again, adjust their expectations so that they don't fall into the common trap. Uh, trap may not be the right word, but so that they don't fall into the common um, <laughs> event thing of wishing, even if they don't understand, uh, realize this, of wishing that an elder or elders would essentially be their father or their best friend or a surrogate father to their children. Is that a bad thing in a sense? Not necessarily, but it, it often happens that someone, they end up wanting from the pastor a best friend or a father figure or a surrogate father for their children. Uh, they, they want that influence in their lives. But when that happens, you're misconstruing what the pastoral office is and what its purpose is. It's not to have oversight over your children so that they are fashioned in a certain way. It's to oversee the holiness of your home and the orderliness of the church. And sometimes you have to be uh, very, <clears throat> not disconnected, but you have to maintain a proper relationship to people at times that is fatherly but not fatherly and friendly but not friendly in so many ways. So just, just be careful to manage your expectations. What is the purpose of this office? It's not um, to, to be this huge personal influence in all of my life, but rather to exercise oversight over me in holiness and to govern and maintain the order of the church. Thirdly, the third purpose is to lead by example. To lead by example. Peter says in verse 3 that elders should be an example to the flock. Our Titus 2 groups have a motto, and the motto is, words teach, examples draw. Words teach, examples draw. I've used this phrase many times in previous sermons. Faithful preaching must be reinforced by faithful living. Pastors should be living sermons, so to speak, so that Christians are able to grow not only by putting into practice the things that we preach, but also by putting into practice the holiness that we, that we make as an example, or that we provide as an example for the flock. Our lives should be imitable, worthy of imitation. This is why elders are called to be above reproach, that is, not perfect, but proper examples of holiness 
and obedience and faithfulness. If a shepherd is at the back of the flock and he's saying, keep going that way, he's only leading with words. Go this way. He's telling you the way to go, but it's purely his words that tell you. If the pastor is leading from the front of the flock, then not only will he have the words this way, but you'll see him going also, and that combines uh, words teach, but examples draw. If you just lead from the back and say, go that way, the sheep will say, wait, there's, there's multiple paths here, and which way are we supposed to go? And I'm afraid, it looks scary. But if the pastor or the shepherd is leading at the front, he says, we're going this way, you know exactly which path. And if it seems scary, he's going first. He's there leading by example. I've used the, the illustration before. You can learn to swim theoretically. You can go to a class. These are the motions. These are the movements. This is how you swim. But it's seeing someone in a pool actually doing those motions that will really draw you in. And they'll say, Look, jump in. It's okay. You may be afraid to jump in even if you know how to swim. You have the words that have taught you, but the example of someone swimming may draw you into the pool, and now you will jump in more eagerly. Pastors are told and commanded to lead by example, a lifestyle that is worthy of imitation. And sometimes what is worthy of imitation is a pastor's repentance. They're not, they're not perfect, but they repent of their sin and persevere in obedience. Their life is an example to be followed, not an example to be avoided. So what is the purpose of the pastoral office to shepherd, to oversee, and to be examples, to be living sermons? Thirdly, the people... The people. We've seen the perspective and the purpose. What about the people? Whom do the shepherds shepherd? Over whom do they have oversight? To whom are they an example? If I am a pastor, if I am an elder, to whom am I a pastor? To whom am I an elder? I'd like you to pay attention to the language that Peter uses here. In verse 1, we see, quote, the elders among you. Okay, we're going to combine three phrases. That's the first one, the elders among you. And this letter was sent to Christians in various regions, so we find that in Christian groups there are elders among them. Whom do the elders shepherd? Verse 2 says, the flock of God that is among you. So there are elders among them, and there is a flock of God among the elders. We have a flock of sheep with shepherds. What is this? Well, let's develop it. Look at verse 3. Peter says he refers to those in your charge. Those in your charge, which literally reads your, your portion. Those that have been apportioned to you. Your share of the church. So, is Peter saying that pastors are pastors of the universal church of Jesus? No, that's, that's a pope. That's the definition of a pope, a universal pastor. That's not at all what Peter is saying. He's saying that the elders among you have been apportioned you among them, and they have oversight over you. So it's not the universal church. Elders don't have oversight over the universal church. What do we see, though? What we see 
is what we would call formal church membership. Formal church membership. If we add all this up, the elders among you, the flock of God among you, and your portion over which those, are, those who are in your charge, over which you have oversight, this adds up to what we call the doctrine of church membership or formal church membership, which is God's structure and God's design for Christians and for his church as laid down in the scriptures. And this is an important thing to emphasize and re-emphasize because it is very um, uncommon in the church experience of many, if not most, people today. They've never experienced church membership. They may have been told that church membership is an imposition, that it's been created by man and it's legalism that wrongly puts uh, laws onto man, onto Christians. But let's define our terms carefully. Legalism is either the abuse of God's law, the wrong use of it, or it's adding laws that God never established. And so people will say, ah, there's no word, formal church membership or words in the scriptures. I don't see it. It's an imposition. But I ask you this, put yourselves in my shoes. If I am to obey this command as an elder to shepherd the flock among me over which I have oversight and the portion that has been given to me, whom am I shepherding? Is it everyone that walks in the doors of the church? Well, no, that can't be. They're not all Christians. I don't have pastoral oversight over everyone who passes through these doors. Uh, is it every Christian then that passes through these doors? Is every Christian that passes through these doors under my pastoral oversight? No, not so. They have not sub submitted themselves to my pastoral oversight. They have not even announced themselves or declared themselves as Christians to me. So I don't have oversight over them. Why would they submit to pastoral authority uh, that they have not submitted to? And so therefore, I have pastoral oversight over the ones who have voluntarily submitted themselves and committed themselves to the pastoral oversight of this church. And those are the ones who have been apportioned to me. They are the portion of the universal flock of Jesus Christ over which I do have oversight and to which I must be faithful to help them arrive at the very end. And what is all of that? It is formal church membership. And some people think I've spent my entire Christian life without formal church membership and everything's been fine. I don't need it now. But that's a pragmatic argument and it doesn't prove anything. The fact that you haven't experienced formal church membership in the past is not an argument about whether you should. The question of whether one ought to be in submission to the oversight of a local church is simply a question of whether that's Jesus designed for his church and for his people. And we see in the scriptures here and elsewhere that it is Jesus designed for Christians and for his, for his church, and therefore it becomes mandatory and obligatory, and those therefore who do not unite themselves as members to a local church or under the oversight of the elders of a local church are therefore deficient in their obedience to Jesus Christ. This is a command in the scriptures. It's a, a, an obligatory example as well as a command and Christians ought to voluntarily submit themselves and commit themselves to a local church. The pastors cannot be faithful in their calling if there's no sheep that commit themselves to their charge. I don't, I don't rope you and lasso you into my charge. 
You're, I don't get a portion with a lasso. Ha <laughs> you walk through the doors, gotcha. You're under my pastoral oversight. But rather, it's those who voluntarily commit themselves to the church or join a local church. Who is the portion that is in the charge of the elders? It's not a random person who's in and out. It's a stable, steady, regular, dedicated flock of Christians who know that they are under the pastoral oversight. Because elsewhere, the scriptures say, obey your pastors in Hebrews. Well, who are my pastors? The ones that I've committed myself to and submitted myself particularly. So it's true that many churches do not practice church membership. It's true that many Christians do not obey formal church membership. And yet, that is simply an admission of fact. And I would exhort you and encourage you, many of you, to consider... Am I being disobedient to Jesus Christ by not joining myself to a local church? Hear me clearly that this is not an argument, TRBC is the one true church and you must join TRBC. No, we would love to have, to have you as members to serve in our church and to, to join our church. And joining a church is so much more than simply living under the, the oversight of elders. The argument is that Christians ought to join a church of Jesus Christ and be under the, the oversight of pastors. We are simply willing to be those pastors to you if you will commit yourselves to us. And it's not just to the pastors, it's committing yourselves to the entire church. The question comes down to, has Jesus designed his church in this way? Is this what the chief shepherd wants for his flock? If he has given pastors to his flock, and if he has commanded those pastors to have charge over and exercise oversight over sheep, then I ought to live under that oversight as a sheep. I ought to be under their government and their ruling. So whom do we shepherd? The people. Who are the people? Not all the sheep, nor all the sheep, not all the sheep in the world, nor all the sheep that enter these doors, but the sheep that commit themselves to our charge. Fourthly and lastly, the prize. The prize. In Peter's letters, John's letters, Paul's letters, they speak of a crown that is given to Christians. A crown. And to understand this crown, you need to realize that there are two different kinds of crowns mentioned in the New Testament, two different kinds of crowns in the Greek language. And you know them both. One is a diadem, Sometimes we sing that in older hymns, or you may read it in the book of Revelation. A diadem is a crown of royalty and majesty. Kings and powerful figures have diadems. It's a crown of majesty, royalty, power, dominion. And so you read of diadems uh, for Christ or the, the beast in Revelation. Those, that's one kind of crown. And then there's a different kind of crown. That's the Stephanos which is a laurel wreath. A Stephanos, it's a laurel wreath, which is given for victory or completion. So military conquerors who return from their campaign or athletes who finish their race or win their particular event, those athletes and military conquerors generally, but not exclusively, are the recipients of a laurel crown that says victory, completion. You have, you have won the battle, or you have finished the course, you get this laurel wreath, you get this Stephanos. 
And here we see that there is a prize at the end of the race for ministers. And Peter tells us that it's a crown of incorruptible glory. A crown of incorruptible or unfading glory. Which is a rather ironic uh, thing to say because a laurel wreath by definition (laughs) is very corruptible. It's, it's going to fade. It's made of leaves. But our crown of completion is one of unfading glory. This is the prize that is at the end of the race for ministers. But you know, all Christians find this crown at the end of their race. Peter and Paul and John speak of this crown for all Christians. It's used, different terms are used. The crown of righteousness, the crown of life, the crown of unfading glory. There is life and perfect righteousness and unfading glory that Jesus has won for us. He has already obtained it and it's reserved for us and we need to run there. We need to race there. We need to fight all the way there. And if we do this, we will receive that crown by God's grace and through God's power and help. But think about the minister's particular race on the way to that unfading crown of glory. So we're saying that ministers don't have some particular and peculiar glory we all sh- we are all partakers of the same glory that's what peter said in the first verse of this chapter but what is peculiar and particular about the minister's race if you imagine a race track there are uh different lanes on that race track but they all go to the same place don't they they all have the same ending but each one has a different lane to get there and each lane has its own obstacles so this is a metaphor for the christian life Uh, As we talked about in 1 Thessalonians, we run our laps in the stadium of suffering on the way to glory. Each Christian is in his own lane, all running the same race with the same completion and the same crown at the end of it. And we just saw last week that there are fiery trials that we must pass through on the way to the end of that race. We must persevere through the fiery trial, knowing that it tests and proves us and purifies us as God brings us to glory. So each runner has the same race but a different lane, and each lane has its own fiery trials and obstacles and hurdles that each Christian must get over on the way to the end. The question is then, the minister's lane. Which lane does the minister have? And the fact is, he has his own lane with his own afflictions and his own fiery trials, But it's also his job to make sure that every single other runner under his charge is also making it over their hurdles and making it through their fires so that they all finish the race together. So the minister, how can he possibly do this? It's it's difficult to run your own lane in your own race. How much more difficult to do that and in addition to that, help all of the other runners in their lanes with their hurdles and their fires. The minister needs the reinforcement and the encouragement of the prize at the end. That we can do this by God's power. We can help them through their fires. We can help them over their hurdles. We can help them all the way to the end because of God's power that protects us and preserves us and empowers us. And because there is a crown of unfading glory at the end, it's worth all the effort. The minister's fiery trial is the cumulative fiery trials of everyone in his charge, everyone who is his portion. And that is a burden that is difficult to bear. That's not a complaint. It's a statement of reality. But we have 
an encouragement along the way in this prize that at the end of our race is the crown of unfading glory. The minister must not abandon the faith under the pressure of maintaining pristine doctrine and exemplary holiness. He must not abandon the faith under the pressure of helping others to jump their hurdles when he struggles to jump over his. How can he do this? By remembering. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. We don't run in vain. We don't labor in vain. We don't fight in vain. We do not till and sow in water for nothing. There is a prize. There is a glory. Jesus has done it. Jesus has won it. And now the shepherds must shepherd the flock all the way there. And what a glorious encouragement for ministers to know that the means that God has given us to help the sheep to get there and the power that God has given us to help the sheep get there is not resident in ourselves. It's resident in his word and his spirit. So my giving of help to you to help you persevere doesn't come from some deep well of uber leadership in me. It comes from pointing you to Jesus Christ. It comes from pointing you to the one who's already finished the race and who says, come to me. The one who's already gone ahead for the joy that was set before him and despised the shame, endured the suffering, defeated death itself, overpowered the devil. And we point to him and say, come on, let's keep going. Come on, don't stop. Come on, through the fire. Come on, over the hurdle. Let's go. You can do it by his power. Look at him. That's what the minister does. Because if getting all the sheep there is about some deep wellspring of, of alpha male leadership or something, it's over. It's done. We can't do it. And if that's the way we do it, it's the wrong way. The power's not in us, and we shouldn't search for the power in us. It's in Jesus Christ to whom we point and to whom we ourselves must look. The chief shepherd. How comforting to know as shepherds that there is a chief shepherd and that he is not a negligent negligent shepherd. He says, I know my sheep. He says, my sheep hear my voice. And so we need to speak his voice to the sheep through the word of God. Reason number 999,999, where what you need from me is not on the Lord's day, my curious ideas and who knows what uh, curiosities, but rather the pure milk, Jesus Christ. And this is why it's such a wonderful thing to enjoy. Again, I'll say it forever, to enjoy the Lord's Supper every Sunday that says, look to Christ, follow after him, suffer in his name, fight all the way to glory that he has won for you and that he empowers you to fight because it's him who works in and through you. Brothers and sisters, there are many disappointments and discouragements and difficulties that face the individual Christian life and therefore the cumulative Christian lives that are in the charge of the elders. But the chief shepherd can help us just as he can help you and there is an unfading crown of glory reserved for us just as it is reserved for you which peter called in chapter one an inheritance that is imperishable undefiled and unfading kept in heaven for you and until that time the under shepherds must look to the chief shepherd and love him first above all and therefore love his sheep because they are his so that at the end of that race their race 
they will receive that one pronouncement that all ministers must long to hear and fight to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Amen. Let's pray. O Lord, our God, who is sufficient for these things, we thank you that we have not been left alone, but that you, Jesus Christ, God the Son in the flesh, have promised us, and lo, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. And we thank you that you have given us your Holy Spirit to dwell in us and to dwell in your ordinances so that your divine power accompanies us in all that we are and all that we do. And we pray that you would help us who are ministers, who are elders of this church, to fulfill our calling with the proper perspective and the proper purposes over the people, the portion of the flock that have been entrusted to us. And we pray that you would help us to run for the prize, to fight for the prize, to be faithful to the end. Encourage us and help us, for we are but men. We are but sinful men, but we are your children. We are your soldiers. We are your captains. And we ask for your help. We rely upon your help. Oh, Lord, help us, we ask. Chief shepherd, work in and through us to shepherd your sheep to bring them all the way to glory and raise up in our midst many shepherds to serve you and to serve your flock, to wash their feet, to guide them and feed them and water them and lead them. We pray that you would do this for your glory and for the good of your people. We pray it in Jesus' name.